Welcome to Business School. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. And I'm Phineas Ellis, the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a show where we talk about the many aspects of consumer startup culture. Today's guest is Nuri Foster. Nuri is the co-founder and former COO of MM LaFleur. She is now a startup coach, mentor, advisor, etc. Today we're going to be exploring the mental health aspect of starting a company, the challenges that a lot of founders face, how they should navigate it, and how they should really construct their company to be uh, a tool in their life to be to be successful and happy. And, and, and when their own personal goals align and their professional goals align, that's what success looks like. And surprisingly, that's more often than not, not how the story goes. Yeah, we cover a wide range of topics on this episode. She's got a tremendous amount of insight when it comes to the mental health of founders, why we start companies, and how we build our lives around those decisions. So welcome, Noreen. We're going to just jump right into it. But to start, it'd be great if you could just sort of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and who you are. Sure. Do you want the long version? <laughs> the lo- long version is fine. Whatever whatever you want to talk about. Grew up in Syracuse with Steven. Well, not with Steven, but near Steven. Went to Cornell with Steven. Um, did engineering at Cornell. Um, and then, but kind of always had the idea of, you know, vaguely... I should do business. And I didn't know what that meant. And of course that meant that I got sucked into the management consulting world. Um, so I did Bain and Company for a couple of years after school. Yeah, very much did not suit me and had this idea, just like, again, sort of a vague idea that entrepreneurship could be cool. And that ended up turning into, a, I met my co-founder at Bain and she and I and another woman started M.M. LeFleur back in 2012. Um, so M.M. LeFleur is a clothing line, a brand for professional women based out of New York. And so I did that. I was COO um, and then my co-founders were CEO and our creative director and, and fashion designer. And then after five years as COO, I, I <laughs> left, um, which was sort of the craziest decision I had ever made and certainly one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, and so that was three years ago. And then I traveled and which, yeah, it traveled, but really I meant I slept for like six months straight. Um, Steven smiling <laughs> jealously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then basically since then have been helping founders in various ways, um, founders and other entrepreneurs and really people in general um, with several different focuses. Um, so, you know, either as an advisor, a consultant, a coach, I was entrepreneur in residence for two summers with MIT's Accelerator. And basically my passion behind it all is probably, you know, based on my past history as well, really helping people align their internal worlds with their external worlds. And in particular as founders, align your business with who you are and thus to the best extent possible, prevent burnout. And then, and then more recently, that's also extended beyond the entrepreneurship world and into romantic relationships. It's actually, I actually think there are a ton of parallels between co-founder relationships and romantic relationships. And it's, you know, it's kind of fun to talk about that world. So I've gotten more into that. And yeah, I sort of have one of those now almost like a portfolio career. I recently heard that term and decided I would own it. And I just, I have a portfolio career and I have, yeah, so I do different things every day, but still some combination of helping entrepreneurs and sort of 
living vicariously through other people's startups, knowing that I don't really want to do it myself again. And then, but yet again, um, still can't help but keep starting new things. So at the moment, I'm working with a friend who has a matchmaking business here in London, and I'm doing, yeah, both sort of startup stuff with her, but also relationship coaching, which is very fun. When you say matchmaking, is that only personal relationships? Could it be professional as well? It's funny you ask. So so at the moment, we're focusing on personal slash romantic, um, but it's really- Romantic again, is the word I was looking for, not yeah. personal. <laughs> <laughs> that would be friend making, which is- well, you know, know, that's, that's a little sad. Yeah, we don't do that. Um, <laughs> so again, a lot of parallels. I actually really love, like, for example, co-founder matchmaking. I've done it successfully a few times. I've done it more successfully than I have the romantic relationships. Um, but um, but yes, it is very similar. But anyway, in the interest I feel of like it's easier because there's an element of like, you have to stay professional. It's harder to like mess it up. I'm just thinking of like all the things can mess up a romantic relationship. If you're like, we're good on paper and we can figure out a way to make it work. Like what's the upside romantically versus like professionally, you're like, we're good on paper and like we're making money together. We need to work on this and there's an outcome as opposed to, I don't know, I'm making this up. And an end date. Yes, it's not forever. You can coexist with a co-founder uh, that is not perfect because there's an end date potentially whereas a romantic a flawed romantic relationship there's no end date well there also could be an end date um but you know <laughs> I, I would argue hopefully that's not the goal success, going into not it. in a successful <laughs> not in a successful one in a successful romantic relationship there's no end date well so i think it's really interesting that you guys are saying that and i i don't disagree but i would say actually that that mindset can be what hurts the potential of a professional relationship mm. um, because I do believe it's as important, as serious, as deep, you know, fine, you're not having sex probably, but otherwise it's all the other things. And, and I actually think that investing in it to the same extent that you would invest in your marriage um, is, is better for everyone and the business and the long-term relationship. So um, I would argue it's just as hard, um, but we, but we, you know, we take it almost less seriously in the emotional side of it. It's it's very interesting you say that. Uh, Kabir and I have it, ha, both have the same executive coach. Kabir's my co-founder. And we've invested in it. I think over the years, our relationship has, has evolved into we have a personal friendship and then we have a very professional relationship. And the more that those two have been diverged, the better we've been, if that makes sense. It's hard yeah. to separate them, but we're almost now like... We're coworkers who are friends outside of work. Uh, it's less of a relationship, but early on, I wish we'd invested more because, like, when you're when you're just starting a company, it's like only a couple of people. That's when it actually is like a re- relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting when I when I meet new founders who are debating. You know, for example, do I who do I take on as my co-founder, or you know, or maybe it's a married couple, or it's best friends, or it's people who just met, or anything in between, right? And I think. And they ask, you know, what's what's a good idea? How do I know, et cetera? And I and I do think so. It, and I tell them it comes down to which do you care more about? Do you care more about the relationship or do you care more about the success of the business? And it's and th- that answer is different for everyone. If you care more about the success of the business, then I think getting into business with somebody you already know and trust and believe in is probably is a better, a surer bet than getting into business with a with a you know a new person who's a risk. 
That said, if you care more about the relationship, then I say, don't do business with your best friend. Don't do business with your husband. And I've seen, you know, many, especially, you know, romantic partners who go into business. Usually what happens is at some point they separate and one stays and one doesn't, which is, can be very healthy. And I do think there's a richness to life in trying to combine it all. But I do think, you know, for me personally, I know that I care about more, more about the relationships than I will ever care about the success of a business I'm involved in. So I know that I need, to, I want to put that first. Um, and, you know, and again, something to get on the same page with, with your co-founders. Do you think you would have said that if you had not had success in business prior? I think I wouldn't have known to say that, but that has always been true if I look back at life. But I, I was not aware. So for example, when I got into business with Sarah Miyako, my last co-founders, you know, at the time it was like, I, you know, I was coming up out of Bain. I cared about the cachet of my resume. I wanted to be a founder. I wanted to be a COO. Um, and I would have said at the time that success and, and yeah, both financially and, and reputably, right, would matter to me. But, um, but now I look back in hindsight and, the, and part of why it was actually, part of why I burnt out was because I put the relationships first over and over. Um, and because I, I still to this day care more about that than the success, which of course I can't say what would have happened had it been unsuccessful. Um, but I can look back just like throughout my life that has always been a theme. Yeah, because there's a big difference in my mind between people who start companies that need it to succeed financially because they need the money. They start a business as their job to make money. They don't have a million dollars in the bank. And so it's easy to put personal relation, put a premium on personal relationships when you don't need the money or you don't really need the business to succeed versus this is working so... I also want to put a premium on personal relationships. I don't know if I'm saying that super clearly, yeah. but I do think like on some level, I think that I pride myself on putting personal relationships forward and first. However, the business that I own and operate, I want and need to succeed. I am sacrificing income other places that I could be making to build my own business. And it's not that I don't want my co-founder to be my best friend. I do. We both do. But ultimately, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't want it to, to work. And if it means a change in our personal dynamic, so be it. Like, I'm not going to put our personal friendship above the business. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had him as a co-founder in the first place. So I think there's an interesting push and pull there about what you need out of the business as well. Yeah, completely. And and I think the equation is really different for everyone. And I think that's like, even, even when you say money, right? Somebody is working for the purpose of money, even what like the flavor of what that really means to them, it can be quite different, right? It could be, Absolutely. Um, you know, money because it's the best metric of success as a yardstick, money because, you know, they want to care for their family, right? There's so many different reasons. And so I believe that we all kind of have a, a hierarchy of our values and of, of what matters to us. And even within that hierarchy, you know, sort of, again, flavors within that. And, and yeah, and so for you, it sounds like, yes, sort of like making a living for whatever the reason is for you. Sure. Yeah. It comes above that friendship. It changes over time. And I think to your point, that's like part of why you need to nurture the relationship and have this open communication because like what I prioritize now versus what I prioritized at the beginning of starting Burrow is, is different and it's different for Kabir and we need to be talking about that 
openly and figure out a way to have that open line of communication where we can be honest with one another. And, you know, we, we had early, early on, we said we're, we're super open and honest with one another. Then we went through a period of time where we really weren't, we said we were, but we really weren't. And we do like, you know, 360 reviews with one another and we say a bunch of shit. And then we'd be like, Oh wow, I'm glad we said all that stuff. And then we go back to like not communicating well again. And then it's hard because it's like it's awkward and you have to force yourself to do it. You can't just say you're open to doing it and then not do it. And I think a lot of people don't do it well enough. It seems to me that it would be more important and relevant for you to be friends early than it is later. Is that the case or is it equally as important in your mind if you're a big business? So like Burrow Day One versus Burrow Today. And Burrow's not a massive business yet. They're not public. They're still private. They're still growing. But I think you think we're bigger than we are. I don't know. But, but bigger <laughs> than I, when I say when I say small. Not public yet. Not even close. Well, what, okay, fair enough. But when I say small, I mean like when it's you and him and maybe one or two other people in a room figuring out how to make this actually a business. You know, friendship's really important in that room versus when you're you know a large business that has raised a bunch of money and has real revenue and maybe a team of 50 or 100 or 200 or whatever it is yeah you know sure i think i mean i would say right friendship is an interesting word i don't so i don't i wouldn't say that friendship itself is what's required i would say and it sounds like what stephen has learned right is managing the relationship investing in the relationship whatever it looks like right and and again and re- whatever your hierarchy of what's important to you is if you, you know, if for whatever reason you care about the success of your success of your business, which every founder does, investing in the relationships that work, and again, whether that's a large company or a small one, um, and to me, what that means is like, what does a successful working relationship look like, or any relationship? Um, is each person individually first, first and foremost, looking out for their own needs, and you know what fulfills them, you know, you know, oxygen mask before helping others, right? Like. Number one, it's, both, it's each person sort of mature enough, stable enough, you know, doing the hard work for themselves, number one. And then only at that point are they then caring enough to look out for the other persons. And, you know, and if that means like Kabir has different, um, you know, different priorities, different interests, different motivations, you know, Stephen, again, from a place of you being, you know, having figured out your own life, you can then, and be figuring out your own job, you can then support him in his and vice versa. And then you have, this dynamic of sort of a mutually respectful um, and and sort of investing relationship that again whether you call that friendship or not she's coaching you right now <laughs> I know no this is yeah. no this is good it's I agree it's everybody every leader in the company needs to have their own stable base in order to be a successful leader and be there for other people and if every leader has their own stability they can be there for each other which sets the overall company stability for the rest of the organization is that right yeah exactly and i think um if you find yourself whether again whether it's co-founders marriage or even a you know subordinate relationship but any relationship where somebody's somebody's being prioritized over the other person right then you lose this sort of equality of that relationship and in my opinion, you know, especially you know, in business, let's say it's it's far better. Again, even if you're somebody's manager and somebody's reporting to somebody, it's it's still the best working relationship to have that dynamic. Um, yeah, completely. So we we have a bunch of things we want to talk about with you. Why did you leave MM Lafleur? Ooh, yes, I thought you might ask me this. Um, you know, it's funny, and I, I was reading. Uh, you know, you sent me that article um, from from Ryan. Was it Caldwell? Called back. 
called back, sorry. Um, yeah, you guys, you guys sent me that article from Ryan Caldback, um, who recently left Circle Up. And, and, in, and I think what happened to every founder who has left their business and who read his article, right? It's like, we go back and sort of replay our own history. And, um, and so I've been, yeah, I've been sort of freshly thinking about that. And, you know, I talk about what happened a lot, um, both in my, with my individual clients and um, in speaking engagements. And it's, and it's, you know, every, every year that goes by, I feel like I have more clarity on what quote unquote happened, right? The story has actually evolved over time. So, I mean, why I left, I guess, like, I don't know, it's something like three or four buckets. Um, the first one being that I was extremely burnt out, you know, which is not something I said at the time, um, not something I really owned at the time, right? But it's in hindsight, that was the number one reason. Um, you know, I was like the last year I was there, I was um, like, on the, just like on the verge of tears <laughs> on like a daily basis. Um, and why, why didn't you own it? Is it because the, there's a stigma around burnout and depression and everything that people view as a weakness or you perceive people to view as a weakness, even though, I mean, how many, you work with a lot of founders, how many of them deal with this? All of them? Right, exactly. How interesting, right? But yeah, certainly a lesson since then is that the more vulnerable and real you are, even as a leader, even in front of a whole team, right? The more you ought to be respected. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of have to learn that lesson the hard way, I think. Um, so yeah, certainly for me, and you know, I was, I was 24 when we started, I was 29 when I left, right? It was, it, I was a child. <laughs> um, and so for me at the time, yes, I think sharing, you know, I did, I did cry in front of the team a few times in a, you know, in a sort of productive way. Um, but I was very careful about the, you know, what I was letting them see, both in my, you know, the executive team and with the whole team. I think for me, I felt very protective of, you know, when I left, we were, we were 200 people and I had individually interviewed and hired most of those people. And it was, I was very close to the team. And so I think, you know, if for me to, at the time I thought, you know, for me to admit that I'm extremely burnt out and to break down in tears is not the most encouraging, um, leadership so especially for know, new people <laughs> especially for new people for you know who i had brought in um so i definitely i very much did that um for the most part and and sort of like the the story at the time which was entirely true and you know still true is that you know i was leaving to prioritize my family and i was helping them build my parents build a retirement house in the pacific northwest um, which, you know, that was supposed to take a year and it's three years later, we're still doing it. We're still doing it. I remember talking okay. about that three years ago. Uh, yes. It's, 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 I'm <laughs> still somehow a significant portion of my time. Um, but it's, but it, yeah, but it's, I mean, it, you know, at the time I had been, I had spent five years completely deprioritizing family, friends, uh, you know, sleep, everything. And, um, and it, it just sort of had bubbled up very quickly as like, this isn't the life I wanted to be living. So that was, again, that was sort of the story that was easier to say at the time, still entirely true. And then I guess underneath that, there's the, there are other reasons, which were A, it was, um, well, it was the first time I felt like I could leave and they would be okay. Um, you, know, I, I, it was, you know, it was my baby. I didn't want to leave it in bad hands. I, so when I left, I was finally, I felt like, you know, I can hire these people to replace me and actually they might even be better off, but at least okay. Um, you hired 200 then, people. You were comfortable that <laughs> it's like maybe between all these people. Um, no, but I hired, yeah, I hired very specific sort of leadership to replace me, which, and we sort of diffused the COO role at the time into three different roles. 
Um, now there's an, one of those people who at the time was head of people is now the COO recently. Um, but for a while it was like a CTO, a head of product and a head of people. And I, and, and I guess the last point is for me, again, wouldn't have said this at the time, um, being an executive at a large company was just so not fun for me. And right. And it's one of those things. It seems like everybody would love this job. Why, like, why don't I love it? And it's really hard. I, I think it's very hard to leave something that you think everyone else would love and right. It requires a lot of inertia, but for me, just like, I really loved the early days building something, being creative. And it, you know, I didn't want to admit that it, it sounded like a failure to me to say out loud that like, I don't like being a COO at a 200 person company, but now I'd encourage founders all the time to sort of just like, you know, whether it's leaving it behind or changing their role into something that has less cachet, whatever it is. is um, let's, let's dig into that a little bit because I think depending on the company, was there a form of MML floor that could have existed that you would have been excited to be COO of once it was 200, 400, 1,000 people? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a loaded question. I think a few things. So one is it's so normal, right? And, and this is what they just like, they forget to tell you whether it's in business school or whatever. It's like, <laughs> um, they forget to tell you that it's, you're not, necessarily supposed to be good at every phase. You're not necessarily supposed to be suited to every phase. And it's not a sign of failure if you're not. Um, and, you know, and like, what did, what did it say? Like what, what got you here won't necessarily get you there. And yet there's this default assumption that like, of course, the founder will be the CEO forever. Um, and anything other than that is seen as a failure or something you have to write a long medium post about. Right. And it's, but actually it shouldn't be that it shouldn't, I don't think it should be that way. And I think as a founder, you know, a big reason I believe we do it, or we, or at least we should do it, is because as a founder, you get to design your life. You get to design a company that creates the life that you want. And you know, most of us don't look at it that way, especially if we started quite young. But but that sh that that is the opportunity available to you. And and you didn't sign up to have a life daily, maybe where you are managing things that you don't care about, and a, you know, a company that's much larger than you wanted. And I think. That's what happens to many of us is it kind of gets away from us. You know, we get stuck in whether it's investor expectations or society pressure or whatever, right? Where we just lose touch with, wait, what did I actually want to do all day? You know, and what I want to do all day will never be running a thousand person company. So I do think the first step is, is there something available in your current place? You know, for, for me, for example, we really explored that. And I bought myself maybe a year in sort of repositioning myself in something that was more inspiring and energizing to me. But, um, you know, and then basically there were, had there been something that I could have done, we would have like, we, you know, we were like, should we, should I do international expansion? And then it will feel small again. Um, you know, we would have almost changed the company strategy around my personal preferences. You know, it's again, the sort of luxury of that position, but, um, but in the end it would have been forcing, you know, square peg into a round hole that, um, that wasn't worth it for me. Right. So that must've been really hard. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> In one word, yes, it was hard. Um, can, you, can you tell us about the, the moment you made that decision? Yes. Um, the moment. I think to me, there are maybe there are two moments that stand out in, as I, in it because it really was, it took me about a year to figure it out and then another six months to transition out. And I remember, so uh, what maybe was about eight months, no, like a, almost a year before I left, I was having a meeting with my co-founder, Sarah, our CEO, and and I don't remember what the meeting was about, but it was something light, but I burst into tears. And she 
you know, to her credit, right? She said to me, she's like, I've never seen you this low. I think you should take a month off. And, you know, and that sounded insane at the time, right? It was like, I was putting out fire drills daily and for her to say, take a month off. So it took me like 24 hours to sort of just recognize that that was remotely feasible and allowed. And we ended up writing a whole company policy <laughs> around it and saying, when you hit four years at this company, you get to take a one or like a three week sabbatical, um, which to this day, you know, people now go on and I really believe in that policy. But at the time it was created out of desperation. And, but, you know, thankfully the team rallied around it and, and I completely, I'd never done this before in life, right? I just like didn't check emails. I drove, I rented a car in Utah and just like drove through the national parks and like went hiking and just like stared at the mountains and that, you know, for three weeks straight. Um, and, and it, it bought me, yeah, it bought me another, I mean, almost a year. Um, and I came back re-energized and we sort of repurposed my role a little bit, but then, so that was sort of moment one of sort of buying some time and, but, and just like recognizing what a low point felt like. And then I guess moment number two was a few months after that. Um, I think it was, we were leaving for the holidays and I was, we had our last executive meeting before, you know, some of us were traveling. I was flying to Thailand that night. We went around and we were like, you know, what, what were your highs and lows of the year? I think it was 26. Yeah. What were your highs and lows of 2016? And I was last. And, it, and I spent the whole time trying to think of just like one thing to say as a high to just like get through the moment. And I, and I couldn't even think of anything to just to like to say as like a filler high. Um, so it got to me and I just, uh, yeah, I just like burst into tears and was like, I couldn't think of a high for the whole year. And that's, you know, and then, and then, and then I, you know, I went and I spent some time with family and I came back and I just, I kind of knew, but you know, it took me another two months to really say it. And then another six months to really get out. But that's pretty clear. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to accept it and recognize it, but it's a pretty clear cut thing. Like once you spent time thinking about it, you're like, wow, I can't think of a single thing that is a high and you're a pretty introspective person. Yes. I do think that, I think that there were many, many signs earlier that I could have spotted. And today I definitely would have spotted. Um, but sometimes, right. And you hear this from many stories. Sometimes you need like something to really be screaming at you from inside to finally listen. And, you know, there's all kinds of like manifestations of, of what does it look like when you're not living, like, you know, I say an aligned life with who you are. And like when I was at Bain, I had I, I was like 23 and I was getting like white hairs and I was getting these stress welts on my skin, you know, and I was like, Oh, I don't think this, I don't think I like this. Right. And then at MM, thankfully I wasn't getting white <laughs> hairs anymore, <laughs> but I was getting, I my was, body is physically telling me like, to, to reject think, this career. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's like a psychosomatic symptom of, of whatever you want to call it, of burnout of depression, of just like not your body trying to tell you like, this isn't, this isn't good for you. Yeah, we, we had a guy, one of our episodes was with the founder of Ignitia Office. Uh, his name's Josh, and he it was a great episode. And the whole concept behind the episode was when to pull the plug. Uh, he had a startup. It was really successful. It was They raised a bunch of money, and it was doing really well. And then it failed, um, primarily because of COVID. And I, I think- Co-working by, space. Co-working concept, and, and it, it failed. But they decided to pull the plug really early in the process. And- he really was articulate in walking us through the mental challenges of making that decision and 
ultimately it came down to accountability and it came down to responsibility to his employees and his investors and being candid. Your story is quite a bit different. It's when to personally recognize and be self-aware of your mental health and pulling the plug on on your business and on your position at that business. Those are really different things, but I think they're both touching on the challenge and sort of the trauma of leaving something that defines your entire life. You know, I think as a startup founder, you are a startup founder. That's what I do. That's who I am. That's my whole life. I'm probably dating that business. I'm probably, you know, everything, especially in the early days, everything is wrapped up in the business, your whole identity. And to pull the plug on that must feel like pulling the plug on who you are as a person. Is that how it felt for you? Completely. It was my, it was my only identity. I, I didn't have any other personal life. I had, everything was, you know, everyone introduced me even at a party, right? It's like, oh, she's the co-founder of MM LeFleur. You should like, she's, in, she does operations. She does fashion, right? It's like, I had those key words and I otherwise, you know, I otherwise had nothing. And not, not only that, but when I left, I, I wasn't in a relationship at the time. And we also broke up like this, like the, a month after I left the company, you know, it was, it was one thing I just hadn't been maintaining um, while, you know, while obviously busy with, with the transition out. And then very quickly after I left the company, it also became very clear I needed to leave the relationship. And right. So suddenly I like, and I let, and I left New York, I left New York, I left my job, I left my boyfriend, I left my apartment. I was living out of a suitcase in like Japan and Hawaii. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just like, exploding a bomb in in both like logistically and emotionally um yeah and almost like starting from again is it stubbornness you know and i'm interested in the fact that it coincided with a breakup because we i think as people tend to hold on to our identities and be stubborn in those identities especially when it's tied to your work and so, you know, when we're working on a business, we tend to put our heads down and blinders are on, but those blinders don't necessarily just apply to your work. They apply to everything. When you have those blinders on, you're like, nothing else matters. I'm going to get after this. And balance, I think, is probably a pervasive issue in the culture of startups. Founders don't have balance. Employees don't have balance at startups for the most part. Is that something that you would agree with? with your clients today and across the landscape in general? Yeah, you know, I think the reason that we allow ourselves to write, to live this life that isn't balanced and to and to be stubborn about sticking to it and, you know, and that sort of pride of grit and perseverance and hard work, right, is, I mean, it, it works for us for a long time, right? And you almost have to, you have to convince yourself that that is the best way to be living. Otherwise, you, you, like, you can't keep going, right? And it's, and it buys you, it does buy, it buys you years as a founder. It, like um, you guys know how much, you know, to work hard and just like put on the blinders and just head down and do it. Um, and even though it sounds like the harder thing to do, it often is actually the easier thing to do because it means that you don't have to face the bigger questions of like, wait, who am I without this? Um, and, and so we sort of like blind ourselves to, yeah, to the harder questions. And then eventually, right, eventually it sort of bubbles up and, and maybe you're forced to leave or, yeah, or you, you know, have a big health issue or something that forces you to wake up. And then it's a huge transition moment that, you know, shedding your snake skin of the previous persona that you got really good at being, right? And it served you for a long time. And at some point it has to shed. Um, and it's painful. And so we avoid that pain as long as possible until maybe, you know, in my case, it just kind of explodes. 
Um, and I think that happens for a lot of people. So how do you help the founders that you work with avoid that? You talked about leaning into strengths, creating and designing a, a business and a lifestyle that is conducive to, to who you are as a person so that you don't burn out. How do, you, how do you help people figure that out? Yeah, you know, so the biggest thing, the, the first step, I believe, is is figuring out who you are, um, right? Which sounds simple, but is the hardest, you know, it's a lifelong journey. I'm picturing uh, Derek Zoolander staring into a puddle. Who, who am I? That is, yes, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, right, it's, it's amazing, right? We go through a whole education and very rarely do we have these moments of actually having to identify, wait, but who am I? Who am I in relation to everyone else? What are my values? What, you know, like every once in a while we do it and maybe more often from a place of desperation and you know, after after something's been painful, as opposed to proactively. But I believe you're, yeah. you're measuring what what is important to you, not not what what do I think other people think should be important for me. What do I actually truly value? Because I think most people would say like, oh, professional success, money, those are the things that I should care about. And I think often the half the the happiest people in the world are the ones that identify. I mean, it can be money, it can be success. There are people that exist for that and they lean into it and they are very successful and they're very happy, but it, it's not, it's oftentimes not the case for most people and being real with yourself. Like what you're saying is it oftentimes is not, you don't proactively do it. It's just like something forces you to figure that out. Yeah, exactly. I think, and you know, like you said, I think we often are living other people's values, whether it's, you know, America's values or our town's values or our parents' values. And it takes a long time to, Right. If you have voices in your head, they're often not your own, right? Of tell, telling you, you know, shouting at you or encouraging you. And so whether it's, you know, sometimes it's actually sort of addressing and it's almost this gets more into therapy, but like addressing directly, like what's what's in the way is it is, you know, was is that, you know, is that a voice from your father that's like actually not your own voice that um, so there's I do think there's a there's sort of a past trauma, past demons process that all of us have, you know, even if we think we don't, there's something there. Um, and then I think it's, yeah, it's getting very, very clear on what are your true values that are directly from you and not influenced by anything else. You said something really interesting I want to pinpoint. You said that putting the blinders on actually benefits us in a lot of ways early on. It gets us far. Is it productive to be emotionally available, emotionally aware self-reflective, vulnerable, open when you're starting an early stage company? <laughs> Great question. Um, oh, I have, I have some conflicting thoughts on this. I think I do too. <laughs> right. Is it? So I think, so on one hand, I will say, I believe a hundred percent, the best leaders are ones who are empathetic and compassionate and communicative and honest with themselves and vulnerable, all these things, hundred percent, like, yeah, no exceptions. <laughs> that said, I think it is very rare for that kind of person to be sane enough <laughs> to try to start a giant company. Um, and, and therefore you find, you know, and, and it was anyone who's running a billion dollar plus company is like, is not balanced <laughs> emotionally. Um, and because I, I think it's, you know, and may, I don't know, maybe there are exceptions. And I hope there are exceptions, but I, I personally have not found any yet. And it's, um, and I, I would love to prove this wrong. And I, it's the big sort of, reason that I'm loving sort of mentoring the founders of tomorrow, because I, I hope that we can prove that sort of leadership 
that comes from that healthy place can actually be very successful and very impactful as well. Um, but I do, I do kind of think that, you know, in many ways, right, to be a founder, you have to be a special breed and you have to be in, you know, me included, you have to be a little bit crazy or like delusional, <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't do it. Um, and yeah, and you know, and then hopefully throughout that journey, you actually learn a lot and you grow a lot and you grow at the pace the company needs you to grow and all these other things. And, you know, and by the time, you know, if a serial founder, you know, hopefully you've learned a lot along the way, but I, yeah, so those are, those are my two minds on it. We have a flawed blueprint, but that does lead us to success in many ways. Thank you, Nuri. This was great. I feel like we could talk for hours. I have so many more follow-up questions, but I think it's a good place to wrap and we really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. This has been a blast. Really great to see you guys. Okay. Class dismissed. support this podcast the best thing you can do is hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to the show you can also follow us on instagram at b school podcast we're going to start posting there we're also in the process of developing a patreon page for listeners to support and get bonus content and interact with us a little bit more so stay tuned for that but in the meantime thank you so much for listening we'll see you next week